So it's not only just flavors; it's also、um, the attitude towards food that Filipinos have. It's this、um, grand、um, belief that if people take your food home, that、um, they love you, that you're family. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. What role has consumerism had on our palates, on our understanding of food, where it comes from, and how we use it? How much has our social construct played a part in our diet, and more importantly, can it change for the better? Adrian De Jesus Stavo is the head chef of Queenies in Kingston, Canberra. Adrian, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Canberra's had a, an incredible evolution over the last decade. Um, with food, and you're at the forefront in regards to、um, pub dining. What's it like being part of that evolution?、Um, it's been really exciting.、Um, I don't know what happened when the switch changed, but people seem to be seeking out、um, a different flavor profile, and、um, especially using native ingredients. The more They don't understand something, especially from an unknown cuisine. The more they want to seek it out, so it's been really great. Queenies is、um, one of the newer pubs, and there aren't many pubs actually in the ACT. But tell us a little bit about the food offering、um, that you have there, and how different it is to what else is on offer in Canberra. It's actually hard to pigeonhole because、um, we cook based on what we love to cook. There's no specific cuisine. So I'm Filipino. The other chefs are、um, Aboriginal, Korean, Malay, and、um, Thai. So we mix everything together because we all don't know. When we started, we didn't know about Australian native ingredients. We were tasting as we were cooking what we loved to see what would mesh well with certain types of food. So it was highly experimental for us: something old, something from our memory, and then something new that we're discovering. As you started that journey and using the native ingredients, did, did you have some examples of those ingredients and dishes that you created that really, really shined? When we change the menu because it's a seasonal menu, so it's、uh, it changes drastically based on supply. But、um, first time I've ever tried lemon myrtle, I had no idea what it was. I had I have to admit, and、um, we have this hiligaynon、um, kind of, which is where I'm from,、uh, chicken that、um, we cook over coals, and it tasted similar. And I added it and just elevated it to a new level. It seemed like it's lemongrass, it's it's lime, it's bilimbi, and、um, the astringency, the sweetness. It was an umami flavor bomb when I mixed it with、um, native ingredients. You mentioned、um, you're from the Philippines. There's over seven thousand islands there.、Just、take us back to when you were young and and where you're from, and and what sort of role food played for you. I was born in Iloilo in the Philippines in the Visayan region. It's called the City of Love for a reason in my country.、Um, there's such a big food community there. People come up with excuses to start a fiesta to feed different, you know,、um, tribes and different townships. Like our love language is "Have you eaten?" And basically, if you have, they don't care. Eat anyways. <laughs> So food、um, is integrated in, in my island, and we don't call anything local ingredient 
because um, the land, the island basically provided for us. We were big in seafood. And whenever we had to take life for nourishment, we had to use everything. So when I was younger, I saw them butcher a goat very ethically. And um, we ate basically everything, eyes, um, intestines, uh, thymus gland or sweet bread, I think, as you call it here. And as a kid, you know, it was um, eye-opening for me because it wasn't about the country being a third world country. It was about spirituality where we would say um, it's a life. So you respect it, honor it by using everything. So that started my food journey um, really early on. I think that was when I was five. Yes. So we never wasted a single thing. Are there any ingredients or dishes um, sort of renowned from, from where you're from that you remember from when you were young? From when I was young. Um, it's very Spanish influenced. So we have, because uh, we were colonized by the Spaniards for 400 years. So the things we call um, like relleno stuffed fish, crab relleno stuffed crab. My grandma made this amazing pochero. It's a goat or beef. It had plantains, and she would simmer it away for about half a day, and the smell would just, you know, engulf the entire house. And she would feed 10, 12 people every time. <laughs> Where did these people come from? <laughs> Who are you? And it was just that kind of community, you know, that we had in the Philippines, like feed people, that kind of made me want to do it as a profession when I moved to Australia because I wasn't, I mean, if you asked me 20 years ago what I'd be doing at 35, it wouldn't be this, being a chef. I thought I'd be an artist, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Tell us about that move to Australia. What what triggered it and, and what was it like move, moving to a new country? Uh, that was 2007. Um, it, we moved because of something tragic happened um, and it didn't feel safe to be in the Philippines. And it kind of hurt us because we do love our country. And then I moved to Australia. Every qualification I have, because I, I have a bachelor's degree in fine arts majoring in advertising, is null and void. <laughs> so I had to juggle three jobs, right? It wasn't very glamorous. My my path to being a chef isn't paved with like neon lights and gold, you know? I had to work big W, fruit shop, fruit picking, the random fruit picking, and um, parcel sorting at the post office. And I, I fit that in a week schedule. That That's how I started. That was um, when I landed in Brisbane. And then I moved to uh, Melbourne. And I had odd jobs there baking um, for pie face, woolies, um, other odd jobs that I don't need to mention. <laughs> and and um, I moved to Canberra. I started working for the casino as a receptionist first and then baked at um, Canberra Bakers and traded as Patisserie 6. And I got lucky enough. There was just one night. There was this clicking in my head. I couldn't stop, like, do something, look for something. 
And then I saw a job post from a guy named Michael Chato. And I looked him up. And at that time, he was the prime chef of Canberra. So he was the best. And I found his LinkedIn. Luckily, he was um, not careful enough. He put his phone number there. <laughs> and I, I basically harassed him. I called him three times, probably more. And then he finally picked up because of the audacity, I guess. <laughs> and um, I said, hey, you're the best. Can you give me a job? And he said, no. I'm like, okay, just call again. Just call one more time. <laughs> Let's see what happens. And he told me, why do you want a job? You don't even have an experience when he saw my resume. He's like, well, how can I ex gain experience if he, nobody gives me experience? And he laughed. It was a guttural laugh. But I knew I had an in because it seemed like he liked the way I was. And he's like, look, like, just give me a shot. And he said, well, can you cook? And I said, well, how about I cook for you and you tell me? And then he told me, okay, you start Tuesday. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> what, did you, what did you cook for him to, that impressed him so much? It was honestly just a sweet and sour fish. I believe it was snapper. And it was my grandma's recipe. Um, I cut it whole. I, I flayed it so it looked like it had a wing, you know, Asian style. And then I put some coriander salad on top, very oriental looking. And he's like, okay. And then I had an interview with his head chef. And then they made me chop things. So for months on, that's all I did. I just chopped things. And I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what Paisan meant, mirepoix, sabayon, anglaise. It was all foreign to me. And then they, from then on, I just learned as much as I can from them. So take us back into that kitchen after, you know, that period of time where they just made you chop things. Um, what did you take from that experience working in that commercial kitchen like that? Well, that was a lot of shopping. It was like 20 kilos of onions. <laughs> well, it made me cry because <laughs> I didn't know I was, I was supposed to breathe in my mouth. Um, I learned um, repetition and I noticed that every time I, I chop a certain way, certain cuts, I get better and better and better at it. I don't think I would have escaped that role as quickly as I did if they didn't find out that I could um, write script with chocolate. Because <laughs> I was the only one who could do it. I could draw with chocolate. And then Michato um, put me on pastry after that and then he realized I could play it because um, I'm an artist so I can use blank space to make anything um, pretty that's something I didn't need to learn so he said um, okay you have promise <laughs> I was like wow thank you <laughs> so he trained me as best as he can I made a few funny mistakes along the way of course like um, making cakes explode <laughs> things like that. But um, with his training and guidance, um, I was able to actually, um, you know, uh, put finesse in my work. It was just a repetitive thing, a constant thing, discipline, because I wasn't very disciplined in my 20s. I was always partying, so he would make sure that I would work, even if I was hungover, because I did that to myself. He had that sort of mindset like chefs um, work hard 
So you have to do it no matter what, unless you're dying. I'm like, wow. <laughs> okay, Chef Mick. What was it about that sort of hospitality life and, and that sort of dr- drive to cook food? What was that interest and that lure for you that made you so fascinated and want to go in that direction? I think when when I moved to Australia, because a a lot a part of my identity um, has been snuffed from me because I had to assimilate and I couldn't be an artist. Of course, I fell into a sort of depression, and um, I found that this gave me structure. This industry gave me structure. I love the stress of it, the organized chaos. And um, the result, you know, I didn't need to be complimented. Nobody had to tell me, oh, your food is great. All I needed to see was um, an empty plate, and that was enough validation for me. I never felt that at any other um, job I've had, even if I was working for an advertising firm in the Philippines. And I just knew that this was for me. Yeah, because my grandmother, she cooked for us, and it was always about feeding people. And I I fed a lot of my friends, you know, and my sister, whenever they go through a breakup or they're heartbroken or there's a problem in their family, somehow food temporarily fixed it and it would make them happy for a brief moment. And that's what I love about it. You had that stepping stone into the industry with Michael Chatto. What's been some of the real sort of influences along the way that have led to the, the role you're in at the moment? Uh, it's not actually a good story. It was this industry, it really hasn't tackled its um, racism, its sexism, its homophobia and all the badisms. Um, it was through that um, negativity that I used as a catalyst to succeed. Um, someone told me that I will never make it. In fact, told me without na- naming names that I would fail because I want to Um, showcase Filipino food. I want to put Filipino food on the map. And they said it doesn't have finesse. And I often wondered about that word finesse, you know, what they mean by it, because that's like a a skill, right? That's what it means. And I just kept my head up because I was an apprentice back then and um, learned whatever I can about the finesse they were talking about and I just realized that um, you know they just have different terms for the way they cut things immersion cooking but it's still the same so the finesse they're looking for is just not in my ethnicity in my nationality in my method of cooking and that became very apparent and it hurt for like a second then Anger took over, then focus, and then drive. And that fueled my passion. I just haven't stopped since. Part of um, what you do and the message that you send through your food um, is decolonizing your palate. Can you take us through um, what you mean by that? Well, I'm from the Philippines, like I told you, and um, the colonial mentality there is still very strong till now, apart from the colorism, you know. And they don't appreciate the food as much. Someone would go to um, an Italian restaurant, a French restaurant to celebrate 
um, big events instead of going to a Filipino restaurant because there's such a premium for Western food, especially European food. It's it shows status, and I don't understand why we cannot appreciate the complexities of our own food. You know, even in our textbooks, um, when you talk about Filipino history, it starts at 1600s when the Spaniards colonized us. What happened to before? So if you want to learn about food, about history, about traditions, you have to go to the mountains to the older tribes to learn what happened. And it's actually a beautiful culture. Even though we were branded savages, it was actually a very gentle culture that has no concept of gender. Even in their language, in our original language, there's no he or she, just you and me, us, and that's it. And there was no power play on gender, you know. There's no man has to take home food. There's only hunter and carer. And it doesn't matter what gender that is. If the woman is better at hunting, then she goes hunt. And um, the, I got inspired by the older um, history so that um, hopefully the younger generation can change their minds about what it is to be Filipino. Even the name itself, Filipino, is because King Felipe invaded the Philippines. So we're all Philippe. Even that in its, you know, as a nationality, is still a colonial. And um, my friends and I in our generation, we wanted um, the Philippines to be named Maharlika, or free people, common people, instead of Philippines, but that never went anywhere. So I was hoping that through food, maybe, the more people ask about Filipino food, the more they want to know about history. Because honestly, it's easier to talk to people when you're feeding them, to educate people while you're feeding them. That was the whole push for Decolonize Your Palate. And I started that hashtag. It's still a few, but hopefully it will catch on in the future. <laughs> What's been the challenges of translating that and, and in a sort of commercial sense, as, you know, like a restaurant and, and sharing um, that sort of history and culture that way? I was lucky, actually, that for some reason, Canberrans are always curious. I would put something that they haven't heard, you know, like a chara, which is like a Filipino sambal. I would reword it or I would combine it like a chara sambal because everyone knows sambal, but nobody knows a chara. So I'd combine it and they, people would ask our servers, what is it? And of course, I've already informed everyone what it is. So they'll be able to um, tell them where it came from, what it is. Sometimes they even say, oh, it's from our chef's grandma. And that kind of pride because I, I have their name. I'm carrying their name and this is what I'm doing. Queenies is one of the sort of the new guard of, of, of restaurants and offerings with this new wave of amazing eateries that are going on in the capital at the moment. How did, how did, how did it begin and how did you get the, the role as head chef? I actually was working in another place um, called Alter Ego. And because of what do you call this? Um, the COVID, COVID uh, lockdown, the first one, 
um, it was going a bit south. So I needed to find a new job, and I don't know why Ben decided to open a restaurant in the thick of it, <laughs> but he did. And I applied. I wrote a really passionate cover letter to my executive chef Matt Standen, lovely man. And、um, I was against the best chefs of Canberra. I found out later on, me with my Spanish-sounding name and my Asian features. And、uh, <laughs> yeah, and I told him, okay, I'm ready. I like your、uh, where you want to take Queenies because he was talking about.、Um, Southeast Asian food, Australian native ingredients, Islander food, and that's all of me. And I said, I will cook for you if need be. The same thing I did to Mick Chadwell. And we talked, and he saw how passionate I was, and he just gave me the shot. Wow! Do you remember what you cooked that impressed him so?、Um, with Chef Matt Matt Standen, I I didn't have to cook for some reason. He just believed me. In my head, it's like, what if I was lying? <laughs> I baked bread for him, that's for sure, because、um, I, I joined the the sourdough boom during the first lockdown. So my, I made my own starter and things like that from bourbon, chili, grape skin plum, and、uh, I made bread for them. And from then on, we've been starting to make everything from scratch at Queenies.、Um, there's a love hate relationship with that from my chefs, but. You know, they're all capable. All of them can bake. All of them can cook savory. All of them can do desserts, and all of them are mostly women. So it's nice. There's been、um, quite a few restaurants open, surprisingly, during the the pandemic. What, what was it like for you,、um, being given this role and this opportunity to sort of express yourself on the plate, sort of during that time when it, it's、uh, quite challenging for restaurants? Yeah, it's. It's challenging in a way where it's hard to get、um, produce in,、um, especially the supply and demand. You know, sometimes the supply can't, you know,、uh, compare to the demand of what they want. So it's always this. Luckily, I have ADHD. <laughs> I'm really lucky because if they're like, "Ah,、oh, no, we can't give you shuriken wagyu this time," like, okay, what can I replace it with? Do you have tajima? And they say, "No, okay." I'll switch to short rib. What am I going to do with a short rib? And it's just these ideas. And me and my chefs, we're like, oh, what about this? Let's try this. We would try small amounts of sauces, small amounts of sides, and we'll see if it's good enough. If it tastes good, and then we would go with that. And whatever is available is constantly checking、um, our suppliers for supplies, like the banya nut. I've been trying to get a hold of banya nuts for two years. It's really hard, so I just change it. Okay, wattle seed it is then. Okay, because I was wanting to make a banya nut tortilla with masa harina, but they they don't have it. So I found wattle seed to have almost the same effect, almost the same flavor, but a bit more on the smoky kind of coffeeish taste, and that became our tacos. Collaboration is at the heart of of your kitchen and the way things are, are produced. Can you take us into the kitchen and tell us how that collaboration between all the chefs sort of、um, sort of epitomizes on、uh, transferred onto the plate as such? Do you have a dish or or two that sort of talks of that? Well, I let my young chefs because most of them have have been、um, in the industry for only a few years. 
and I let them, if they have a good idea that they want to run with, they, they're passionate about, I let them put it on a set menu. Because I remember what it's like being, you know, a young chef, not being to produce anything because someone said, uh, because it's the hierarchy or anything like that. And with them, it's a very young flavor, very young, new idea, you know, no influence yet. I want to see where they would take something. For example, um, one of my young chefs, um, she's Korean. Her name is Jamie. She created uh, Noki because she said, I'm not well-versed with Noki. I want to make Noki. And I asked, well, you can't just make Noki for the sake of doing it. What do you want to do with it? What flavors? What do you want to eat? And she said, Tom Yum. And I'm like, okay, let's make a Tom Yum Noki. You know, you're Korean, but let's make Tom Yum Noki. And she's like, but I don't know what to add with it. And I said, hang on, let me check. Like seafood or beef, what protein? It's like seafood. And then we checked what's available. And I said, oh, scallops are really good right now. Let's go grab some scallops. And then I just helped her plate it, but all the flavors, the idea, you know, the noki is from her. And now it's doing well that people actually order it off the set menu just by itself, even though it's degustation portion, just to try it. And you would see just the amount of happiness and pride they have over, you know, producing their own dish. And it's cute to see them take photos of it in a well-lit corner of the restaurant when there's nobody around to post it on Instagram, you know? It's those small things. That's why it's collaborative. It's happy. It's supportive. That's what I want in my kitchen. One of the things you've become known for as well in uh, Canberra is the tasting or, or set menu that you have. And not many pubs do that sort of thing. And t tell us about um, the set menu and the experience that, that you're giving there. It started out of necessity because after the second lockdown, we can only have 25 people in-house for two hours. That's how it started. And I had a talk with um, the owners and the uh, executive chef was like, hey, let's put a set menu so that it makes sense. Because what if people only ordered um, free tacos, let's say, and then they stay for two hours? Um, we will be at a loss, especially of, because of the labor cost. And we started doing a well-priced, I think for me, um, set menu, because you get five courses at, for $75. And it's not something that's tokenistic as well. It's not, especially the vegetarian set, it's something that we really thought about. I would lose sleep over it. I'm so obsessed that I would just keep thinking. And sometimes I accidentally taste something that goes well together, you know, like a Pringle chip and it's honey Dijon. And then all of a sudden I thought, hang on, this will be a good pairing with a steak. So I started fermenting honey and of course, we need to have a native ingredient because that's our whole theme. So I fermented honey in Kwandong for 21 days and then made Dijon ketchup and um, shirakin wagyu, flank. And then it went well. So it's all happy accidents for me. I hope it keeps happening. You're very passionate about where you're from and the influence of the food from, from your culture as well. How, how does cooking make you feel? feeding people it i just get such a kick out of it my friends tell me every time they come over for dinner um why do you cook so much i want you to take some home 
<laughs> so here I have a lot of takeaway containers so that you can experience this again tomorrow. <laughs> it's just um, that kind of culture in the Filipino community, you know, especially in the Philippines. Um, and here it's a bit different. And I want to bring that over, over here. Even at Queenie's, I allow them to put in takeaway containers. You know, it's not, I don't know if it's, something that people who give out hats <laughs> look at, but I don't really care. I want them to enjoy it at home and come back. It's like, hey, I ran out. Maybe I should get some more. <laughs> yes, you should. Order as much as you want. If you can't finish it, put it in a takeaway container. <laughs> so it's not only just flavors. It's also um, the attitude towards food that Filipinos have. It's this um, grand... Um, belief that if people take your food home, that um, they love you, that you're family. You've created um, this this amazing offering at Queenie's. Um, what do you love about what you what you do at Queenie's? There's so many. I first of all, I love seeing um, my chefs improve. I have to mention their names because I'm proud of them. I only listen to it one day. <laughs> So I have Chef Red, who's my um, mentor at sashimi. Traditionally, you know, women are not supposed to do sashimi, but he taught me and he was really good at it and still very good at it. So he's in charge of the roll bar at Queenie's. And whenever I don't know anything, even if I'm the head chef, I'm like, hey, can you teach me how you did that cut? And he would. And then I have uh, my pastry chef, Patricia, who just seems to love bread and pastry so much. Everything is perfect. She's a perfectionist. I have Rose Stolentino, Jamie Shin, and Mary Foster. And I've seen the way they improved for the past two years, and that's the most important thing for me. Because when they started, they couldn't even make baguettes. And now I can just leave them. Probably they'll be better than me soon. <laughs> I'm like, I'm stuck with vaporworks. <laughs> but then, um, yeah, that's the sense of pride I get from it. And then um, with the front of house staff as well, it's more a team. It's very infectious when you act like a family, when you're there to um, support each other and to push Queenies into something more than just a pub feel where people get drunk and eat food, you know. I want them to come back because there's a, that sense of community. Like, they feel safe. There's a lot of women, you know. There's a lot of a few men, but mostly female-staffed uh, venue. And beautiful decor. And the music's loud enough and soft enough that people can enjoy the conversations. And music is still a bop. You made a real statement with what you've created there. Where, where do you see the, the future? Do you have plans over the next couple of years to take this to a, a, a different level or do something more? With Queenies, um, we actually plan to do more events. So it could be either um, when we can finally make our own um, cold cuts charcuterie if we have the time because I've started learning how to dry age things so maybe we can move on to making our own brazola and then having that as a but with Filipino or Asian um, flavors and then starting to do that as a charcuterie and wine event um, having our own barbecue nights having our own 
you know, um, different kind of um, approach to food. Basically, uh, eating without cutleries, you know, we call it a boodle fight where you eat on top of banana leaves and you just use your hands. But we're going to try and look that up because I'm not sure if it's um, OHNS, but we will see if we can. So slowly, it's like it's been baby steps for us to introduce us because apparently that corner in Kingston has been cursed. But so far, it's been good for us. It's been good for us so far. Well, Adrian, congratulations on what you've created and and what you'll create from, from now on as well. It's an amazing addition to the capital. We've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear just a bit of your story. Please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Yeah, thank you so much. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.